Thank you for listening to Prophetic Politics. This is Thabiti Anyabwile. I want to make you aware of something special that's happening and invite you to come. March 5 through 7, 2020, Just Gospel 2020, we'll be having a national conference in Alexandria, Virginia. That's March 5 to 7, 2020, in Alexandria, Virginia, at Delray Baptist Church. Our theme this year is Pilgrim Politics. So if you've been interested to listen to prophetic politics and you've been encouraged by what you've heard in turn, in, in tone, in substance, come to Just Gospel 2020. We're going to be thinking about what it means to be Christians, particularly what it means to be pilgrims who are passing through this world, who have a prophetic political concern for the things that are happening to our neighbors, the things that are happening to our country, uh, and who are trying to think how to bear faithful witness um, in, in, our, in our local situations, in our national situations, and so on. So if you want more of this, more of this conversation, if you feel like this is an area of discipleship where you want to grow, need to grow, uh, as I do, March 5 to 7, 2020, Just Gospel 2020, Pilgrim Politics, Healing Conversations About Christians and Politics in Alexandria, Virginia. Come to our website, justgospelconference.org, justgospelconference.org, and find more information. We'd love to have you there. Hey, we might even tape an episode of Prophetic Politics, and you can join us. God bless you. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Tabidi Anyabwile. And I'm Ben Brophy. All right, so, uh, Tabidi, Ben has accused us over the last several episodes of choosing topics that have a liberal bias. Mm, this is what the conservatives always That's say. You know, yeah. Well, it's what happens when the facts have a liberal bias, as they oh say. Oh, my. Um, oh, my. With that in mind. Can we talk about Canadian politics for a minute? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, by the time this airs, that will be out of date. Yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's fine. All right. Well, so. So the reason I bring that up is because we may have found a topic where we're going to see some kind of some strong arguments on both sides, um, even if there is a specific kind of biblical direction. Because, well, first of all, it's a topic that just has a lot of dimensions underneath it. Uh, and that topic is that of social insurance. Now, the social insurance is broad. It includes things like government-sponsored health insurance, so Medicare, Medicaid. We actually think of that as insurance. But it also includes things like social security or welfare programs, um, and we'll talk about why that is in, in just a moment. Um, to give you the really brief kind of summary of the argument, uh, the caricature of the argument that is, you know, Democrats will say these sorts of programs are necessary, they provide good things, health care, welfare, benefits, other things like that, to people who are poor or vulnerable in need, and then Republicans, by contrast, are going to say the government just has no business providing these things. Um, they might even say the government shouldn't be taking over these things. So taking over the healthcare system, um, they'll talk about socialized medicine, things like that. So that's kind of the space we want to be in today to talk about. But there's a lot more to unpack there. Amen. Amen. So, so what do we need to know to understand uh, social insurance in the United States? All right. So I'll try to make this as, uh, as brief as I can and probably fail as I usually do. Um, so social insurance is like private insurance. So let's talk about what private insurance is to begin with. So in private insurance, I pay an insurance company a small-ish amount of money uh, on a regular basis. That's the premium. And I pay that to insure against some kind of bad event. And if the bad event happens, then the insurance company pays the cost of that bad event. So car insurance is the example most of us probably are familiar with in our lives. 
I pay a monthly premium for my car insurance, but if my car gets wrecked, you know, the, the insurance company will repair the car rather than me having to pay the cost. So the difference between social insurance and private insurance is that in social insurance, the government uh, lays taxes on all of us or most of us or some of us to pay those premiums. So the premiums are taxes that go to the government. And then the government either acts as the insurer or they pay someone else to sort of be the insurer. They collect the money and they sort of give it to other insurers. Um, so if private insurance insures against bad things, um, wait, sorry, stop, stop at that last sentence. Anyway, I was going to say, um, so private insurance insures against bad things. It insures against your car being wrecked or your home catching on fire. We purchase the insurance privately. We pay the premiums. We collect the benefits if bad things happen. With social insurance programs, they are also insuring against bad things happening. So what I said before, government-sponsored health insurance, it insures us against having to pay big medical bills or sometimes small medical bills. And that's actually one of the questions, what kind of insurance are you going to get? Um, we all pay Medicare taxes, for example, out of our paychecks. Those fund a program called Medicare. And then Medicare basically insures every American over the age of 65. Um, Social Security is social insurance against the uncertainties that come with old age. Um, that program was actually created under FDR, under Roosevelt. And there's a quote um, from him that was sort of, that's iconic from the time that the program was created. He said, no greater tragedy exists in modern civilization than the aged, worn out worker who after a life of ceaseless effort and useful productivity must look forward for his declining years to a poorhouse. A modern social consciousness demands a more humane and efficient arrangement. So it's true, before the advent of social security, one of the leading causes of poverty was getting old and just being unable to work anymore. So social security takes premiums out of our paychecks. So whenever you look in your paycheck, you see a line that says FICA, that's social security. That's the tax that you pay and puts it into a trust fund. That trust fund then funds social security benefits that people receive after they retire sometime in their 60s. Um, finally, even welfare, a program like food stamps, for example, um, is a social insurance program. What you're essentially insuring against is hunger or against getting so poor that you can't afford to eat. So all of us pay taxes that contribute to that program. And those of us who fall below a certain income threshold because we've fallen on hard times have access to the benefits of the program. So it is insurance against being poor, essentially. So that, that's kind of social insurance you know, at its most basic. Ben, have I left anything out about kind of how it works, the mechanics? No, I don't think so. So let's talk for a moment about why is this even a debate? Why do we debate these things? Um, well, the question involved in social insurance is essentially, when should insurance be social versus being private? In other words, could all or most of these sorts of insurance be provided by private companies like your auto insurance rather than by the government? And that's, that's really the question. So if you're a conservative, particularly a libertarian, like our friend Ben here, this will be a particularly compelling I argument. I do not you. claim that title. You don't? No, no, I do not. Oh, it's been updated. It just, okay. It just I'll, looks like one to I'll us. I'll redo it. I'll redo it. Colorado, Cato Institute. I don't know. Okay. Just, just, just call me a conservative. It's fine. If you're a conservative, if you're a conservative, this will be a particularly compelling argument to you. Having the government do these things may be unnecessary, you'll argue. And it may be harmful, right? A, a bigger government program means a bigger government and more potential for abuse, more potential for corruption, everything that happen when 
you know, government is bigger. Um, if you're a progressive, you will argue that some forms of insurance are better provided publicly. Um, at issue here is the idea that insurance is a way to manage risk. At an individual level, I don't know, and I don't have control over whether my car crashes or my house catches on fire, and so having insurance is a responsible way to guard against that. At a group level, the system only works because of a pooling of risk across people. So let me explain what I mean by that. I may pay a premium for auto insurance my whole life, but it may be that the cost of my car wreck far exceeds what I've put in, right? A total loss of my car, for example. Well, where will that extra money come from? It's not that, like I paid the money and it went into a savings account and now I'm just getting it, but that's just savings, that's not insurance, right? The extra money will come from all the people who are paying premiums and didn't have something catastrophic happen to them. That's what risk pooling is. We pool risk and when one of us has the catastrophic thing happen, we all pitch in essentially. That's what an insurance pool does. But a risk pool managed by a private insurance company, uh, actually any risk pool, is a tricky thing because insurers don't have to issue insurance to everyone. They may look at your history. They might say, ooh, you've had a lot of car crashes, or your house has mysteriously caught on fire a lot. And they might say, we won't even insure you, or if we do insure you, we will charge a much higher premium to account for that risk. Um, so they, may, they also may choose to insure the people that are most likely to pay the premiums and not have the insurable event happen. That is a fundamental incentive of an insurance company. So the argument goes, there are some events that are hard to make sure everyone gets insurance for. And health insurance is one of those examples. So if you ever hear in the sort of debate, people talk about so-called pre-existing conditions, mm -hmm. that is the example of, I crash my car a lot or my house catches on fire, except mm -hmm. in this case, for the most part, you have no control over it, mm -hmm. right? You um, have already been diagnosed with cancer, for example. That cancer is not going away. Um, an insurance company, if they underwrite you and ask about your health history, will say, well, we already know you have cancer, so we're going to charge you a higher premium or we're not going to insure you at all um, because we know that about you and we know you're a higher risk. Um, and um, a health catastrophe is also much more expensive than these other catastrophes. Um, you know, a health catastrophe can cost millions of dollars uh, for, for, some, for some people. Um, so... Um, that's the argument that says some of, these, some of these things require a public insurance program because private insurance won't quite do the trick because private insurers will have an incentive to screen out those who are bad risks. And if you want everyone to be covered, you need either rules or a government program that's going to do it for you. Now, the conservatives will counter with this. They'll say being insured against something, especially by the government, changes your behavior. This is what economists refer to as a moral hazard. Uh, it basically makes you less likely to guard against the insurable event. If I'm insured against car accidents, maybe I'll drive more carelessly. Um, if I'm insured against poverty, maybe I won't care if I don't work. Even if I'm insured for health, maybe I'll smoke more or I will just not engage in healthy habits. So it's a genuine thing. The government has the power to coerce all of us via taxation into any sort of insurance scheme where our taxes serve as premiums against some sort of insurable event. And then to cover that event, when bad things happen. But again, the fundamental question is, for what sorts of events should they do that? What's it in society's interest for them to cover and why? Um, so let me stop there, Ben. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, so I think there's, there's three other conservative arguments against, not against, but cautions about social insurance that I would add um, to what you've laid out. 
First is simply financial. I mean, if you talk about the scoring of something like Medicare for All, which is a, a policy prescription that's being um, thought about. It's making the rounds. Making the rounds. Uh, you're talking about an additional $32 trillion in debt over the next 10 years when we already have a debt of $22 trillion. We are setting records for deficits currently. And so, you know, the people who are going to benefit from, from Medicare for All, particularly the sick and the elderly, like many of them, you know, are going to pass on while our children will be saddled with a relatively, not relatively, an enormous debt that has hitherto never been seen in, in mankind's history. So is it moral or is it right to borrow that kind of money, uh, even for something as noble as providing better health care coverage, not necessarily outcomes, uh, for a lot of people? And that's kind of, that's one thrust. Um, my second, my second conservative argument against social insurance that might be pertinent here is sort of religious liberty concerns. Um, think about abortion. There's lots of folks who are pro-choice uh, as a matter of health care. They think it's a health care outcome for the mother. It needs to be covered. Would government policy or tax dollars cover that stuff? Obviously, that's been an issue of debate for many years. Um, and so we as Christians would not want health care for all to include something like that. Um, and then third, this is more of a, this is a libertarian argument. I, I will claim that. I, I think the ever growing state is a matter of concern for some conservatives and libertarians, right? So if we get to a place where, you know, the government is collecting a, a bigger part of your paycheck um, and it's getting more, we're more and more reliant on it for a variety of, of needs, services, um, you know, Friedrich Hayek is the famous road to serfdom. Like this is his his shtick. Um, the bigger and bigger the government gets, the harder and harder it is to extricate yourself from the government, um, and so you become reliant on it. And then if your way of life conflicts with the state's view, you start to get into some trouble. Well, and to be clear, we we could have a whole episode on government, sure. big or small, but I think it. It deserves a pride of place here because social insurance is one of the largest expenditures in the federal budget and most state budgets. Uh, the joke uh, that it goes is that the federal government is an insurance company with an army. Right. Right. Yeah. Because those are the two expenses. Right. Yeah. Like, and yeah. so it yeah. makes sense for uh, that. That brings this into the yeah. debate. I think social that's really important. Social Security and Medicare accounts for two thirds of our federal outlays. Is it's that something right? very high. It's huge. <laughs> and defense spending is something like 10 to 14 percent if my Again, check my memory because it's not perfect, but it's it's massive outlays, huge. Yeah. All right, so we will go back and forth about those issues um, for most of the rest of the episode, but let's let's get some biblical grounding here. Um, Pastor T, what do you got? <laughs> I wish the viewers could see you sort of throw up your hands like, get some biblical grounding. What does the Bible say? Well, that's anything about pooling funds to, <laughs> that's what to I'm live saying. at risk, right? You know, Although, however. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Bible's sufficient, right? And, Indeed. Uh, and, and it's authoritative. Um, Nicholas Walterstorff uh, coined a wonderful phrase called the Quartet of the Vulnerable, um, by which he meant sort of these four categories of people that the Bible often speak, speaks of in terms of um, needing the, the special care and protection um, of society, right? So a, a key text for that might be Zechariah 7, 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, 
the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So those, those four categories of people become sort of archetypal of um, you know, special concern when it comes to any range of issues uh, regarding justice and government and mercy and so on, the, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant, the sojourner, right? You see that picked up in the New, New Testament as well in, in bits and pieces. So James one twenty seven, you know, true religion, right, is to care for the widows and orphans in their distress. So I think in principle what the Bible sort of gives us is at least an answer um, to the target audience question. You know, who should benefit mm. from such programs? Uh, primarily the vulnerable, right? And again, there's all kind of debates that one could have about how you set thresholds for the vulnerable, whether or not some of these programs are means tested and so on and so forth. But, but in principle, I think the scripture is saying, care for the weak, right? Which Nick, you know, when you go back to your example of insurance companies uh, sort of gaming around pre-existing conditions, for example, um, that, that's what makes a sort of private system you know, sometimes particularly egregious because it's actually um, structuring this, the incentives are structured in such a way that the healthy are the ones they really want in their pool, mm-hmm. not, not the weak, not, not the vulnerable. Um, and again, we can look across a range of programs and, and see how that dynamic could be at work. Of course, the, the opposite is true if you think about the sort of social programs, right? So government often, uh, folks who work in uh, social services, things of that sort, are often pushing upward the the, the sort of limit of inclusion mm-hmm. um, and, and getting more and more people in the program, um, arguably sometimes without good justification in terms of need and vulnerability. So one of the things the Bible gives us, at least as a principle, is we got to be thinking about these social programs in terms of um, biblical categories of vulnerability, widow, orphan, um, poor, uh, sojourner, and so on. The other thing I think is, is interesting to think about, at least when you look at the Old Testament, you look at Israel as a theocratic kingdom, uh, and you ask yourself the question, well, what does social insurance look like uh, in Israel? Hmm. Well, there are no private or public health insurance companies, <laughs> right? Uh, however, there are, there are laws requiring um, Israelite society to provide for the vulnerable. Uh, so we, we mentioned several times on the show before the laws around gleanings. Right mm-hmm. from your fields, you don't you don't reap everything out of your field, but you to you to leave some, um, so that the poor might collect. Now that that's really interesting, I think, in a couple of ways. Uh, one is it kind of targets the main industry in Israel, if you will, right? It's an agricultural, hmm. uh, agrarian kind of society, um, and so it takes a sort of main industry, and and leverages that industry, in a way that provides for the vulnerable. But it's also interesting because it requires something of the vulnerable. They actually have to go pick the gleanings, right? Um, and so there's a kind of dignity in that kind of, um, for lack of a better word, sort of socially sub- subsidized work program, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of what you find emphasized in the scripture is, is this emphasis, even where the poor are concerned, uh, on work on effort and so on um, comes to the New Testament you know you find things like if a man won't work he won't eat mm-hmm. right um, and so I do think there is still this important principle uh, that's about human flourishing 
and about human productivity and about connecting care and help to flourishing and dignity and productivity, not undermining those things, but <clears throat> helping in a way that, that seeds and encourages and fosters um, those kinds of things. And so that, that sort of conservative concern about the ways in which social insurance undermines productivity, I think it's a legitimate biblical concern, um, even as the so-called mm -hmm. progressive concern for caring for the vulnerable is also um, a, a legitimate biblical concern. And I think what the Bible does is intersect those. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it crosses those in, in really uh, helpful ways. Here's the other thing I think the Bible, the Bible sort of tips us toward, and that is this, that if, if we're thinking about institutions in the Bible that are responsible for social insurance, primarily, mm -hmm. it's not state or private sector, it's family. It's family. So First Timothy chapter 5, a man doesn't care for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Mm. Um, you know, many, many other texts where family sort of comes to the fore as the primary locus of, of provision. Um, and, and what that suggests to me is that, that there ought to be sort of investments made, uh, social insurance and otherwise, that, that also center the family mm. and are meant to, to bolster and strengthen the family as a whole. And interestingly, in, in the sort of history of uh, recent history, last 30 years or so, of sort mm. of social insurance programs, you think about welfare reform, things of that sort, the reforms that took place are, are really in those kinds of directions where, where old sort of um, policies, aid to dependent uh, families and so on, required there not be a man in the house, things of that sort. It was sort of tinkering with the policy to think about can we incentivize marriage, can we remove that, that provision, that requirement. Um, there was the attachment of, of work first uh, kind of language and policy, um, revising you know, TANF and so on. Uh, so I think, interestingly, at times, when we just sort of look at the history of, of social programs, social insurance, um, there have been times where it's tipped more biblically in terms of having both of those broad sets mm. of concerns represented and times where it's tipped, you know, left or right uh, in, in more pronounced ways. But biblically, I, I think, you know, again, we're not going to go to a text and say, thou shalt have private insurance. Mm -hmm. But we we'll go to many texts and say, thou shalt not oppress, thou shalt not exploit. Um, and I think that should be the case with how we think about social insurance. And we can go to many texts that say, you know, care for this, what we call in the quartet of the vulnerable, yeah. and to care in such a way that you're still conferring dignity and the obligations to work and duty, um, both as an indiv individual and to the family. Yeah. There's one... There's one example that has kind of struck me on this. Um, uh, a, a while back, there was a study done on the declining labor force participation of prime age working men. So it's something like 25 and 54. And so um, th this number is a age 25 to 54. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a hot debate on you know the unemployment rate. Uh, you know, we everybody wants to politicize the unemployment rate for obvious reasons. What's interesting is the unemployment rate has been relatively steady. Um, for a long time, but the labor force participation number has started to creep up. Mm. So there's a couple of reasons for that. One on both. Up or down? Ben? Up. Oh, like, really? So like from, I think, 10 to about 15 to 16%. So You mean non-participation? Non-participation. Sorry. 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 So, so this is so labor My force fault. participation. And the reason this is important just for our listeners yeah. is 
unemployment equals the number of people unemployed divided by the number of people looking, looking for work. work. Right. So these are people who are not even looking anymore. Right. And so, but if the number of people looking for work goes down and yeah. nothing else changes, unemployment technically also goes down. Right. Right. And right. so, but that might mislead you to think that we're doing great when right. in fact more right. workers are just getting discouraged. Which yeah. politicians play games with all the time. Here's the interesting thing about the increase in the in the discouraged workers uh, number. It seems that there's a couple of reasons for that. One, um, a lot of them are going on to disability. Hmm. So they're making disability claims, and there's a, a rational economic incentive at hmm. a certain level to say, I'm better off on disability than I am working a job. Two, and this comes on the other side of the concern, returning citizens are not – inclined to apply for jobs because that box is there of are you a felon mm -hmm. and so there you have an example of a policy that's failing on both the quote-unquote conservative and progressive interests right so we've got uh, a disability program that's allowing people to make a rational economic choice to go on disability instead of work and we're also discouraging returning citizens from looking for work as well which denies them the opportunity to pursue, hu pursue human flourishing at a job so to me, that's an example of a public policy that we could tweak just a little, and it would be much more aligned with what we're saying here biblically. Yep. So what I'm hearing from you, Thabiti, is there is um, kind of biblical support for both impulses that we see from mm -hmm. kind of both ideological points of view, if you will. Um, and I think what I'm hearing from you, Ben, obviously, is we've kind of talked about the sort of pros and cons. One of the... So, so one thing I think we should come back to then is this question. In our opinion, right? Um, what kind of uh, what kinds of things should the government insure against? Right? Like, like if you if you could choose the sorts of things the government w could insure against, what would they be? And Ben, if the answer is not much at all, like oh. I mean, you know what I mean? Like I, I would I would understand that. So no. I think we should just think about that. So to be clear, I I gave you guff about calling me a libertarian. This is partially why I'm not a libertarian. Mm. I believe there should be a social safety net. I think <coughs> it, I think there's a moral imperative biblically mm -hmm. to have one. Now now how much of that is taken on by the private world, which also includes churches, and and how much is going to be taken on by the state? We can debate mm. that all day long. Um, but yeah, I think I think. It is a good thing to have a social safety net for people who are disadvantaged, oppressed, like the categories that T mentioned. Um, so elderly is definitely one that I we've de we've decided that as a country a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, I do have real concerns, though, about being able to afford it. Um, again, claims being able Social Security being able to pay out full claims. That's supposed to end in 2024, 2025. Somebody can check my math. So that program is in jeopardy. And so we, current citizens, have made policy decisions for the past 40 years that's endangering that program for succeeding generations, including us in this room and including our children. So anyway, all that to say, what categories do I think we should insure against? Yes, the widows, the orphans, the elderly. Yes. But the details really matter. Yeah, sure. They absolutely do. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with that. And I, I would say, uh, and actually, the, my next question is going to be about the details, right? Like, So I think a few um, thoughts from me on this would just be that I think health is one of those categories. I think, so, so this is something we've talked about before, sort of John Rawls and the veil of ignorance, right? Where we talk about, you know, 
imagine not knowing where you're going to end up in the distribution, healthy or sick, um, rich or poor, um, and so on and so forth. I think there are a number of things that that's actually a useful framework for thinking about what you'd want to insure against when you don't know. Ben's smirking at me because I don't. I'm I not think, a Rawls guy. Not a Rawls guy. And the thing, the thing, the the reason I say that is because you don't know if you're going to get cancer, right? So to go back to health, you don't know if you're going to get cancer. You don't know if you're going to be have an injury occur to you because of an accident, and thus change your medical condition, sort of, you know, inalterably or permanently. Um, it makes sense that everyone should have access to good health insurance for that reason, right? Now. The details matter. No, I guess my yeah. my pushback here might actually be more philosophical. Mm. Like that sounds like the Rawlsian position is like an equality of treatment or opportunity. But biblically, government, I think, is here to promote justice. And so I think it's it's different. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not coming. I'm not being very eloquent. Mm. I don't know that the government should be in the business of trying to guarantee a quality of, of health coverage outcomes. This There's isn't so much this that is, we can't. This isn't outcomes. Okay. Right? Like coverage. Like coverage, right? In, in equality of access to treatment when something bad happens. Sure. Right? Um, but you know, so 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 I can't guarantee that everyone who gets cancer is going to be cured of cancer or that right. everyone's going to be cancer free. What I can try to guarantee is that when you do get cancer, you have access to healthcare and that it doesn't bankrupt you. Whether you're rich or poor. That's right. I guess, so broad strokes, that makes sense. But then it's like, what is healthcare, right? Like, sure. Does does my replacing my ACL, MCL, like what what is the level that the government needs to step yeah. in and make sure that we get equal access and where we don't? And so... I, I do know. think that's, that's what I, I, I do think that's one of those details, right? Yeah. Let me give you an example from sure. real life public policy, then, right? Yeah. So we all know about Obamacare, for now at least, still the law of the land. We'll see kind of what happens in the years to come. But the way it's it's funny, the way Obamacare worked was actually not to make the government an insurance company, right? What it did was it said we are going to place some regulations on private insurers mm -hmm. such that they all have to be willing to insure everyone. Um, they all have access to. Uh, sort of the same risk pool of people, and poorer folks who are trying to buy insurance are going to be subsidized to do so. So it was a bit of a patchwork set of things. Um, first cooked up at the Heritage uh, Foundation, well, I should note, in the 90s. There's an argument that single-payer would be more efficient and better. Potentially, yeah, absolutely. Both from an economics perspective, let alone. Yeah. Anyway, continue. So what I, the reason I want to focus on this is not because of the details of Obamacare, but because to say in order to make these regulations, they had to then tell the insurers what constitutes essential benefits mm. that need to be covered in every insurance package? And the answer, uh, I'm not going to say it's like the end-all be-all, but it had, it had a few things on the list that you might say. So, for example, um, primary care visits to your doctor ought to be free yeah. without, without even having co-pays. That was kind of one thing, which is you should be able to do your checkup, you should be able to check, do basic diagnostics, which are low cost and high return, right? Yeah. Um, second, uh, maternity coverage, prenatal, neonatal. Uh, and labor and delivery needed to be covered, right? Yep. Um, those are just two examples of things where you might say, yeah, we can, we can have a debate and we can come to a consensus as a society about a certain core of services that sort of every American ought to have access to and that we ought to kind of be able to cover each other for, if that makes sense. So that's, that's one. I mean, obviously, it's, not an, it's, it's a tough question, but it's not an unanswerable question that can't be sort of arrived at through 
a political process. Yeah. Yes. I just I'm reflexively uncomfortable with the idea of healthcare as a human right. Not that you're necessarily making that argument. Um, I'm, I won't quite go that far. I would actually I would just say the society clearly has the capability, being as wealthy as it is, to provide a certain baseline level of access to care. Do we? I mean, given given the amount we owe and the amount it would cost, like, do, do we? I, at some point, spending at this level, as we have been f- since however long, since Bush after 9-11, right? Un- mm. Uninterrupted growth of debts and deficits. That that bill does come due, at some point. Um, what does it look like when the bond markets crash? What you know, whatever. Uh, at a certain point, I don't know that we can afford all of these things. No, maybe not all of them. Maybe not all of them. I would say though, um, if you th- if you think about it, right? Like, it is it is possible to imagine an amount of coverage that is not zero that mm-hmm. we could afford, right? Um, even if it's not as generous as what is being contemplated by kind of a Medicare for all plan. Um, but it's also not nothing either, if that makes any <laughs> sure. sense. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the U.S. is one of the lowest taxed wealthy countries in the world right now. Like by comparison to sort of other OECD countries, most of which do have much more kind of aggressive uh, sort of socialized um, health systems, to give sure. sort of one example. Um so I would not call it a human right. I would say it's a thing that because we can do it, maybe we should, right? Um, the other things on my list, and we'll, there'll probably be other sure. sort of episodes on this, right? But education, actually, to me, is a form of social insurance. We, 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 owe each other, we owe ourselves another episode on But what I mean by that is that for the government to publicly fund public education um, is a way of ensuring that what type of family you're born into and your parents sort of ability proclivity uh to be able to kind of yeah get you off to the right start doesn't need to be the determining factor uh in kind of what happens to you when you get older yeah so i mean I, th- I think we have a long tradition of of being of educational yeah yeah, yeah. and 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 so and, and 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 so again education yeah. is a sort of thing but in, in a way though you want to talk about insurance against insurance for the orphan education early childhood programs are among the sort of first lines of defense when it comes to children who are vulnerable. Um, things like um, things like Head Start, and then things like pre-K programs, and then finally K-12 education. Um, old age, that's Social Security, as you noted. Um, I think, as you say, it's a question of whether we sort of can afford it. But the idea there is um, sort of insurance against what could happen to you when you get older. Um, and then finally, this idea of insuring against poverty. Yeah. Um, and the idea that, like, in that sort of behind that Rawlsian veil of ignorance, you could fall on hard times. Um, you know, you could lose your job. And what do you do when you lose your job? And can you be el- you, you become eligible for benefits like that? I mean, during the recession, more people fell under the poverty line. Because those programs were set up in such a way, it meant that sort of the government, government spending increased on those programs in a almost counter-cyclical sort of way mm-hmm. um, in order to counter that poverty. Now, I'll give you, so here's, here's my one attempt at a stretch biblical example from this. So I think we've used this example before. So think about Joseph, Genesis, and Pharaoh, right? So the joke is that was our first example of counter-cyclical economic uh, policy ever. <laughs> we know famine is coming, <laughs> right? And so we're going to tax people extra now. We're going to take the grain now. We're going to store it in the silos for such time as when the famine comes. And then we're going to actually sell the grain back, right, in the sort of seven years of famine. Now, here's this whole social private thing. 
Would it have worked for Pharaoh to say, the famine is coming, someone ought to do something about it? No, it wouldn't have worked. And, and the reason it wouldn't work is because corporations don't have the same interests as governments. Mm. Right, and so part of what we we're circling around when we have these conversations in the public is we're circling around sort of whose interests should be central right. in the conversation. Um, so you you go back to Egypt and and Pharaoh say somebody should do something about this. No doubt there's some enterprising Egyptian somewhere around the place uh, who's buying up farmland on the real cheap and driving up prices on mm. on grain. Uh, mm -hmm. because their interest is, is profit, uh, and mm -hmm. they can do that in that context. That is not at all in the best interest of the average Egyptian uh, or Egyptian society as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, you know, part of the answer to this question is, again, whose interest is central, uh, and maybe even in your sort of cyclical example, whose interest is central right now, mm -hmm. right? So we don't have to have sort of one answer be the answer that serves in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. You know, one policy is not going to serve us until Jesus comes back if he tarries, right? right? Um, and so I think we need a certain kind of nimbleness uh, mm -hmm. around these questions that forge answers for the period we're in and the foreseeable period that's coming and mm -hmm. then holds it kind of loosely for the periods that follow. Because one of the things that we always do is, mm -hmm. is we produce unintended effects <laughs> with yeah, these sure. with these policies, right? Which which then make the policy decision, which looked so good five years ago, mm -hmm. look horrible now mm -hmm. uh, in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. And uh, we dig in and fight about that old policy, right? And say, okay, what should we do now? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, biblically speaking, insofar as the scripture isn't overly prescriptive in terms of what uh, prescriptive at all, really, in terms of what a Christian should think about a particular policy in this area, we ought to embrace that freedom. Mm -hmm. We ought to embrace that nimbleness um, and be the kind of folks who bring in answers that are, you know, sons of Issachar kind of answers. Mm -hmm. We're discerning the times uh, and applying the scripture appropriately. Yep. And just to make that connection, this idea that you can't always rely on private actors to serve the public interest. Mm -hmm. That's actually the issue with your modern day health insurance That's company. Right. That's right. Um, it's funny. Uh, I was a management consultant for years. Some of the clients my company served were health insurance companies. And it was very simple. If you're trying to serve your bottom line, if you're, in, you're a health insurance company, there are only a couple of ways to increase your profits, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You can increase the prices, the premiums you charge. Mm -hmm. you, can, um, you can improve the risk profile of the people in your insurance pool by mm -hmm. screening out the people who are sick, That's right. right? Or you can refuse to pay out claims. Yep. Like, that's it. Yep. Those are your options. Yep. Yep. Um, and so, in a way, I always would say, well, I don't begrudge the insurance companies for doing what their shareholders expect them to do. It just tells me that a system that relies on that to deliver public good is a broken system. And the folks who are, are most brutalized in that system are the ones who are most vulnerable. Hmm. It's yeah. the parents who have the kids with catastrophic illnesses or uh, major disabilities. They're going to need long-term care. Uh, it's the folks with the, quote, pre-existing pre conditions. Mm -hmm. um, things of that sort. And yeah, um, yeah that, that system doesn't work for those populations. Yeah, and, and not to beat the dead horse, but when I was embedded in the libertarian world, th the answer to that was always, well, the market will take care of it, the market will take care of it. And it's like, the market's not infallible. That's right. It's run, it's run by men with very particular, men and women, with very particular interests. Yeah, it's and not even moral. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah it's, that is right. It's, yeah. So, yeah, I think 
I think that's well said. Yeah. Your, your point still stands, Ben, that you, you need to ask how do you pay for it and what makes what marks a sustainable amount of expenditure and are we as a society yeah. willing to make well, the decisions to pay for these things? Yeah, I mean, full stop. We can't afford the social programs we have now. I mean, we've known this for years. We, we can't afford it at our current level of taxation. Right, right. So Which is lower gotta, than the rest of the Western world. Sure. Something's got to change. And, and Ben says, that's good. <laughs> it should be lower still. <laughs> well, we'll talk about separate episode on we taxes. We'll talk about tax policy. I do look. If you want to continue having social programs at the levels that we have them, just holding levels. Yeah, taxes are going to have to increase, but that cannot be the whole answer. You have to start looking at other areas of the budget and say, what can we what can we spend less on? What can we spend more on? What where are we going to find some of the savings and increase revenue mm-hmm. that we need here? And then. Mm-hmm. Additionally, tax policy is also how we tend to incentivize family structures. And sure. So yeah. There's a lot. Th- there's just a lot of trade-offs that you. It gets messy really quickly. Yep. So the question now becomes: We cannot afford these programs. At, at, at all things being equal, right now, we cannot afford what we've got. What are we going to do about it? And that's where I think policy debates headed. So I don't think we're going to solve sort of the question of you know kind of the federal or state budgets and kind of how much or how little ought to be spent. I will, I will say this. I think that the dialogue in our country has been for our entire lifetimes, you and me, Ben, at least, and most of you are speaking. Oh, 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 uh, man, uh, cold-blooded. Oh, oh, that was the shadiest thing in the history of this podcast. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Won't be the last time, Thabiti, sorry. Um, but but since, since basically the advent of the Reagan Revolution, the idea that taxation is a legitimate thing to discuss as a means to pay for anything has really kind of not been part of the conversation. Until until very recently. I mean, I think it's part of the current policy discussion. Uh, oh, well, I mean, in the Democratic, it's part of the Democratic yeah. primary <laughs> conversation. Yeah, but, but one of the main contenders yeah. is definitely is talking about that. Yeah, and I, but, I think well, it's and, fair and so to talk actually, about. So, but, let me, but let me give a couple of examples of yeah. that, right? Like, and, uh, I, you know, I, I hadn't prepared the stats on this one, but I think, so you've got a couple of ideas that are coming out, right? One of them is the idea of a wealth tax, right? The idea of kind of a mm. fortune that is over a billion dollars, right? Or, I'm sorry, over 50 million in the first instance, over a billion in the second instance, ought to be taxed, right? That we think, you know, I'll put it more more strongly than that, right? There is a, you know, there are are, uh, folks on the left with like Twitter profiles that have like the tagline, every billionaire is a policy failure. (laughs) And I'm not entirely unsympathetic to that argument. Who needs a billion dollars? Well, let's, we can, let's shelf that for a, Okay. <laughs> well, my my point my point there yeah. is that there are forms of taxation we haven't even considered, right? That like are only just making their way into the discourse now. Um, there also is the fact that our tax code has um, kind of a whole bunch of loopholes in it for folks like private equity managers, um, for um, you know, for folks who like the idea that we are taxing kind of dividends and capital gains. We are taxing people who make money for their from their money mm-hmm. less than people who make money from their labor. Right. Not mm-hmm. sure that that's quite the right decision to make. Right. That's a, that's um, a, yeah. That's a, yeah. You know, and, and, and other things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm not I'm not going to tell you. Yep. And once we do all those things, we can pay for everything. Right. I'm not I'm, I'm not an expert on the federal budget and sort of thinking about that. But I do think that 
in general, when we talk about social spending, thanks to the success of the Reagan revolution and of people like Grover Norquist and Americans for Tax Reform, the idea of raising taxes to fund anything is basically off the table in the current era. And I'm not sure that's the right position to be in. I know I'm sure that is not the right position to be in. I'm less sure. Why? Well, again, let's save it for a tax tax policy debate. Um, I'm not well equipped to argue this point today. Um, it just depends. Yeah, yeah. Depends on the specific tax proposal. So, Thabiti, what do you think? What is kind of the right sphere? What are the types of things the government ought to insure against? Oh, I was on the tax question. <laughs> you, you went back to the previous question. I was on the tax question. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so the, the, the question of, you know, how much should government tax um, is 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 always a discussion in a, in a sort of republic, a democracy like ours. Yeah. Um, and it may be that one side is winning to such an extent that it seems like it is never a question. But it actually is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a good one to have, a good one to debate. Um, yeah, in, in terms of things that the government ought to ensure, I th again, I think my mind runs um, first to populations, mm -hmm. vulnerable populations that should be uh, cared for and protected. Um, and then my mind runs secondly to um, basic need. Um, so if we're talking about policy that's aimed at the, at the poor, then we've got to have some standard of living in mind and some way of closing mm -hmm. the gap between what they have and what it costs to actually live. We're not talking about, you know, be wealthy, um, but mm -hmm. to, to live. Um, if, if we're talking about um, health insurance and, and health care needs, again, I think in principle we're asking ourselves the question, as you were articulating in the Obamacare example, well, well what are the basic kind of accesses that, folks should have, what are the kinds of benefits that people should have access to um, that we think provides a satisfactory basic level of care mm -hmm. um, for the poor, for the vulnerable, for the populations that qualify. Um, so I just sort of come at this in terms of principle, thinking in terms of um, adequate standard of living kinds of criteria mm -hmm. um, that, that raise people you know, to that level who are in categories of yeah. uh, sort of qualifying for that kind of care. Um, getting into sort of more specificity in that, I, that you take me back to my think tank days. I got to dust off a lot of books and papers and, and, and brush up on that. Well, and I guess I'll say one thing on that. One other principle I think we can agree on based on what you said, Thabiti, is when you do decide to fund any of these things, it is always possible, almost always possible, to design them in such a way that you don't remove the incentive for work, mm -hmm. that you don't mm -hmm. remove the incentive for kind of productivity, mm -hmm. individual productivity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important thing. So just to give an example, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, there's a, there are a lot of deep 90, 90s cuts uh, on this one because that's when a lot of this policy right. was made. But the 90s also saw the birth, um, or the expansion, as it were, of the earned income tax credit. Yep. Right? And the whole point of the ITC was to make work pay. Mm -hmm. um, that when you... Um, you know, you get sort of money back from the government. It's a form of welfare if you're working class. And the more wages, the more you earn on your sort of tax return within that very mm -hmm. low tax bracket, the more the mo money the government's going to refund to you um, at tax time, yep. right? Um, you think about things like, you know, incentivizing seeking a job. Now, this is actually, this is going to be controversial to my friends on the left, right? When we talk about 
sort of work requirements for Medicaid or for welfare programs. Um, I'm sure those can be designed poorly, but the idea that one ought to either work or demonstrate that they're looking for work in order to qualify for public benefits, you know, on its face makes sense. The devil's in the details of the design, but it sounds like that's something that from a biblical perspective, it's worth thinking about when we think about access to public benefits. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I will say as somebody who's been laid off and had to go through the requirements of trying to collect unemployment, it is difficult Yeah, Eh. to to give your progressive friends some credit. Wow. There does need need to be a way to to signify that you're searching for work. It's really hard. But in a Mm. way that's not going to take as much time as you're using (laughs) to apply for jobs. Yeah. So So, So this gets back to actually one of the challenges of the size of the welfare state that you go back to, Ben which is how administratively complicated it can be. Yeah. For example, when you decide to means test a program, that is so much harder mm-hmm. than not means testing it. Mm-hmm. You have to ask people what their income, you have to ask them to prove stuff, you open up your, yourself to the possibility of fraud as people mm-hmm. misrepresent their income, et cetera. Yeah. Every policy complication you add um, creates an administrative hurdle or burden, both for the individual and for the sort of size of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why, and there's another episode uh, buried in this one, some people warm to the idea of a universal basic income mm-hmm. to sort of replace many or all of these benefits mm-hmm. because it is administratively about as simple as it gets. You yeah. get a check for being alive. Yeah. Well, you know, efficiencies, are, again, are always, not always the best values, mm-hmm. right? So we could create more efficient programs in terms of administration that are not more effective programs in terms Mm -hmm. of other values that we care about, right? So for example, Mm. the the sort of, uh, you talk about means testing programs, Mm -hmm. things of that sort, there there are burdens in that, but there are also blessings in that. One is that, one is stewardship. Mm. You know, so we wanna talk about sort of biblical values Mm. that should inform how we think about these things. Okay, how we steward the resources that we do have is one such value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to mean the kind of accountability that makes sure that people who are getting the benefits actually should be getting the benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's not always an efficient process, right. um, but it does go to more effective stewardship. And so these, these things are, if, if we're looking for simplistic answers, if we're looking for sort of one value that we sort of stretch out all the way across the policy, mm-hmm. and then that be the solution, we're just going to be frustrated or we're going to be foolish in the end. Um, these things are naughty and complex, and we have to sort of balance multiple values yes. that, that are sometimes in tension with yeah. one another. And I guess I'd say if there's one takeaway I have from this conversation, right, you've heard from kind of all of us with different perspectives, it's that I want to hear conversations like this going on amongst our elected officials. Mm-hmm. Amen. Most of the time, right in, in the modern era, the retreat is to specific kind of talking points and positions, mm-hmm. right? So Ben, my lefty friend, wants the government to take over whatever the area being insured is. Mm-hmm. He wants to socialize it, and that's bad, right? Or, you know, the BD, my hardcore conservative friend, <laughs> um, has no heart, doesn't care about poor people, doesn't care about, you know, the vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? Uh, impugning motives, attributing motives, Right, um, and for that reason, we have barely made any significant changes to social insurance policy in the last three decades, other than the advent of Obamacare, which was sort of a. And he spent all, all his political capital <laughs> on that. That's right. That's right, and 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 it's been contested ever since. Right, 
So, so it is a lesson for me around, I actually think there is a wide middle space for mm-hmm. contesting and asking questions about these and that people from different ideological viewpoints could probably pretty easily get into a room and sort of compromise on any number of these issues. How much should we spend? How should we design it? What benefits should we include? How complicated or simple should it be? And actually, people of good faith should be able to arrive at these solutions. Yeah, something I've seen be effective is making the breadth of your legislation just quite a bit smaller. Um, Hmm. So uh, one thing that's kind of germinating is uh, paid family leave, right? Yeah, And so there's conservatives who see that as a pro-family policy, and Mm -hmm. then there's progressives who see that as helping the oppressed. And so there's broad consensus here, and it does seem like something is going to happen in that space. But because the where you get into trouble politically, mm. better or for worse, probably for worse, is when it starts bec- growing to not just, you know, we have to include this person or this type of relationship or brothers or sisters. or It's just the circle of who you get paid family leave for as it expands, getting it across the finish line becomes more and more difficult. Um, that's just one example, but... It, the point I'm trying to get at is I think if you keep your focus narrow, you can get those people of of different sides to get together and agree on a policy prescription. Um, I think when you get something as broad as – and this is the poorly – this is pragmatics. This isn't necessarily biblical. When you get something as broad as Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, rather, um, <laughs> it just becomes a knife fight. It, it, and it has been for years. It's just a, It's just a knife fight. Um, but I think something I've seen work decently well is just narrowing our scope and trying to improve things a little more piecemeal. Two cents. Yeah. Yeah. That's really? just pragmatics. Not yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I find myself agreeing with what you're saying from a pragmatic perspective and longing for transformational leadership. Oh, yeah. Mm. Just longing for folks who would risk their capital to make something substantially better uh, in some of these policy areas we've been talking about. I'll say one other thing about it, sort of an unspoken thing that keeps some of this policy from being made is the racial element, Mm -hmm. right? So um, essentially what it comes, so so, um, of all those programs I've just named, Social Security, though it may be on shaky financial footing, is actually the one no one talks about cutting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. One reason for that is Social Security is for everyone. Right. Everyone old. who gets old. And old people say, "Don't you dare touch that!" And old yeah. people vote. Yep. Medicare is in a similar position, yep. also for old people. Yep. It's programs like Medicaid, which is for poor people, or programs like welfare or food stamps, or other things like that, um, that become more contested. And when we talk about expanding social benefits, there is this sense of, and rhetoric has been used of, who are the new benefits for? Mm -hmm. And I do think that is one thing that keeps us from having a rational conversation, right? So all those other countries I mentioned (laughs) that tax higher and fund more generous welfare states also happen to be more homogeneous countries. That's right. Also happen to be mostly white countries. Also happen to be countries where we say, well, we know who the benefits are for. They're for us. And in fact, um, you could argue one of the central contradictions, for example, of the of the Trump presidency is that Trump himself has some instincts around there should be more benefits out there for people. But it also sounds like it's more benefits for my people, which keeps him from sort of moving on 
some of these things like expansion of the welfare state. Also, his party apparatus, for various reasons, also says, we're not doing that, right? But you could argue that it is the presence of that kind of racial element that also prevents progress on asking about, like, how should we think about taxing ourselves and providing benefits to the most vulnerable among us? Um, and that conversation is stopped, at least, or stymied. Uh, and often, half the, most of the time, we're not actually saying that out loud. It's just something that's happening in the background. I have no, uh, I, I, no, 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 establishing programs to help the vulnerable. How should the Christian think about approaching that from wherever they sit in politics? Um, I think on this one I would, uh, because the policy is so complex and there are so many nuances to it, I, I A, hope that there are a lot of Christians who are involved in making policy on things like social insurance. Um, and B, would say, I don't, I practically speaking, don't know the best way. Principally, would say, what is the what is the most biblical outcome we can get, um, given the constraints that we're in, um, and and advocate for that. I mean, uh, even in this conversation, I just feel there are we we've barely scratched the surface of the complexity here, and so there there is a reality of like, I don't really know the best way to generate the most healthcare coverage that's economically feasible i don't i mean maybe if i did maybe i'd be very wealthy but there that is a very difficult problem to solve and and so my advice to christians is be smarter than me (laughs) and me (laughs) but don't be smarter than me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's it's a it's a good question it's it in some ways you know the answer to this question is the, the same answer we give to all the previous questions we conclude shows with I want to suggest that the Christian work very hard excuse me work very hard not to be partisan in their approach to this not to have their position driven simply by the the party talking points because invariably as Christians if we're bringing the whole counsel of God with us into the public square we're bringing more than just one party's talking points um, and we're bringing more complexity um, to it. So I want to encourage Christians to um, really resist the temptation to simplicity and simplistic kinds of ideas, embrace the complexity here, uh, represent as much of the Bible as you can represent uh, in these conversations and still be coherent, uh, still feel like you have a sense of um, coherence in your thoughts. So be for the vulnerable, but be for accountability. Um, be be for generosity, um, but but be for dignity and work and those things, and hold those things together uh, as best you're able in the public square, uh, pushing for uh, pushing for policies. Here's, here's the last thing I would say. We haven't said this yet. Be sacrificial. So mm. if your engagement on this issue is driven by how does it affect me, and you're not among the vulnerable. I think you're called to pick up your cross. I think you're called to die to yourself. I think you're called to sacrifice. Now, there's some sacrifices that are foolish. I'm not commending that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're probably good and right, proper areas of sacrifice where we mm-hmm. should say, I'm happy to be taxed a little more mm-hmm. in order that this population of folks with this need aren't, aren't dying from it, mm-hmm. right? I believe in life and want to protect it and want to see it flourish. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm happy to be taxed as an example. So to bring a sense of sacrifice into these conversations for the, for the public good, for the flourishing of uh, people made in the image of God. Well, and I think one application of that is you can't sort of automatically think, have this knee-jerk idea of like taxation bad, mm-hmm. tax cuts good, mm-hmm. right? You can't, I mean, there's such a thing as too mm-hmm. much taxes and sometimes it makes sense to t- cut taxes, but this idea that I might have to pay more isn't an automatic, we should be unlike the rest of the world and not automatically recoiling at that prospect. I and do think that's true. Because often the Bible's word for that is selfishness. Mm. It isn't always selfishness. It isn't always selfishness, but sometimes it is. And I think mm-hmm. we have to stop to think about in our own lives mm. whether or not it is uh, and repent of selfishness and um, mm. cultivate hearts of generosity. Yep. I, I, would af- I would affirm that. I'll add one addendum, which it may be that some Christians out there are brilliant businessmen who are called to address some of these things in outside of the government. I mean, I think mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. IJM or mm-hmm. anything like that, where it's we're going to build an organization that can do a lot of good in the fr- in quote unquote the free market um, to alleviate some of that suffering, and it you know it could be all sorts of things. Um, so I, I think that there is a both and to that particular piece. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the only other thing I'll um, add to all that is just to say, if we think about the current context as this airs and we get into sort of the campaign season, there will be several different versions of this debate playing out. The buzzwords you'll hear are things like Medicare for all, free college, paid family leave on kind of both sides of the aisle. Um, you're going to hear things about, um, you know, you're, you're going to hear things about these sorts of kind of public's policy arguments and debates uh, about the establishment or the expansion of these sorts of programs or the reduction of them. And each of them actually has to be considered on its own terms via those criteria you're talking about, the meeting. How will it treat the quartet of the vulnerable? Per what you said, Ben, is there a plausible path forward to paying for it sustainably? Right? And what does it say about us as a society if we decide to sort of tax ourselves and extend that benefit to that population? I think those are the criteria Christians should bring to every sort of time they're asked, well, what do you think about debt-free college or Medicare for all or whatever it may be? Mm-hmm. That's something we should pledge to do ourselves as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, you want to pray us out, Tabiti? Be glad to, man. Thanks for the conversation, brothers. Father, we do pray that you would help us to know our responsibility in these things. We pray that you would shape our conscience and our thoughts according to your word. We pray that you'd help us to embrace the freedom that you give to sometimes differ. And we pray, O Lord, that as we work on multiple fronts uh, to see more of your rich truth brought into the public square, that you would give us good success, O Lord. Uh, We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to engage these things, thinking primarily of ourselves as citizens of your kingdom, not not merely of this country. Uh, And that as citizens of this country, Lord, we would have both otherworldly um, and thisworldly concerns. Uh, help us to get the balances right and to bear faithful witness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.